Welcome to the Standard of Truth podcast. In this podcast, Dr. Garrett Dirkmont and Professor Richard LaDuke explore the early history of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints and the life and teachings of Prophet Joseph Smith. They examine the original historical sources and provide context for events of the past. They approach the history of the Church with faith, expertise, and humor. Hi, welcome to another episode of the Standard of Truth Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Garrett Dirkmont, and I'm joined by my friend, Professor Richard LaDuke. Hello, Garrett. We're here with the Standard of Truth Tour. Thank you yeah. very much. Yeah, that, it, it took a few seconds for them to cheer. <laughs> yes. Was, they, was, they had that, to be was that what you told them? I exactly, yeah. did exactly like, what we, I... We aren't really happy that we're here, but we want them to cheer <laughs> yeah, anyway. That's right. Yeah. This is our ninth take of actually trying that uh, Well, that in one of the earlier takes, I said, my name is Professor Garrett Furfman. <laughs> so... Yeah. Well, so we, we received some, we've, we've had a wonderful tour uh, with absolutely wonderful people, and uh, we really enjoyed it. It's been just absolutely lovely. We're, we're a little more than halfway through. We have a couple of days to go. And so we went through, we received several questions from uh, the tour group, and the goal here will be to try to answer some of their questions. And really what I think, if, if this ever gets released. Which it will not. Okay. I, Richard has to keep telling me that because it's not going to actually get released. Uh, it's the same way he's like, we won't ever do another question about polygamy. And then he's like, hey, what about what about this question that's about polyandry? Um, uh, that, that if, if, this ever, if, if this ever does get released, I mean, really the way to make sure your questions are, are read is you have to go on a tour. Yes, yeah. that's correct. Yeah. Or at that least we, answered on the bus. We've changed. Poorly. Either you pretend to be my son, or you go on a tour. Those yeah. are the only ways. Yeah. Well, and someone pretended to be your mom. <laughs> they did. Uh, at, at some point, pe- people are going to be pretending to be like your second cousin, <laughs> twice removed. Yes. Well, so uh, if you want, we can just dive into uh, the questions. The deep end. Yeah. Okay. Here we go. Um, now we have been to. Uh, we started with a little bit of American history. Um, and uh, no American history questions here. I think you you were fully comprehensive on the bus telling everything about the revolution. I, so I think that they got a taste of what would happen if I started talking about the 165th Regiment of Foot. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Said, so Yeah, I have a testimony, but it's not that strong. <laughs> yeah. um, so our first question, um, given all the hardships that the Smiths had, uh, what was the relationship between Joseph and Emma like from January 18th, 1827 to April 1841. <laughs> it's a very specific date. Those are, <laughs> those are very specific dates. It's interesting. Um, it's interesting. What, uh, what it didn't prompt? say May 1841. It said April. It's interesting. Maybe it should yeah, have said what, March, actually. What was the, what was the cutoff uh, for, you think? I don't know. I don't know. Is Nauvoo different time period? I don't know. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Interesting. It's not season 38, it's not, so. It's not the, the month of... The ceiling to Wise of Beeman, or nope, okay, nope. okay. Um, so uh, just before that, like one day before. Look, that. this is. I mean, obviously, <laughs> obviously, it's a great uh, a great question about church history is is Joseph and Emma's relationship. Now, sometimes I'm a, I'm a little bit of a, a dream crusher on that. Um, sometimes, I mean, which would be 
on brand. What do we call? We should call it Dream Crusher Tours. We've, We've gotten a lot of really good ideas on what to, how to redo everything that we currently are doing. Right? Is it from all these people? <laughs> from all these the, wonderful people. All the people in the room right now. Hey, we really love everything you're doing. Yeah, what if change you change all of it? Yeah. <laughs> Is there some way that you could uh, take us this way instead of that way? Is there some way that you could talk about this instead of this? And is there some way that it could be led by someone else? <laughs> a, other than that, love the other show. Other than that, everything's great. Um, so uh, what, I, what I mean by a little bit of a dream crusher is, is because we live in a, you know, the 21st century, we, when we envision the way that they, they had you know, their romance, we, we, we do it the way we envision it, the way we, uh, uh, you know, dated or whatever. And of course, the 19th century is very, very different. Um, I was talking to somebody about this earlier and, and, you know, I, I don't remember who, so that means I'm just making that up, right? Yes, okay. Yeah. Um, and when Emma married Joseph, she wasn't even intending to marry him. Now, now I don't mean like she wasn't intending to marry him at all. I mean, she left home and to go visit some family friends. Now, she says visit family friends, but Joseph also so happened to be there. So, I mean, my guess is there's some kind of, or maybe Joseph said, I'm just going to stay here. I'm going to stay here until she comes to visit. You know, he was willing to wait it out. At any rate, when she gets there, Joseph's there. And so Joseph, when she's there, she, she says, I had no intention of marrying when I left home. Meaning she left, I don't know, with like a knapsack with like, you know, two changes of clothes in it. Like I'll be back on the weekend. You make her looking like a, like a hobo with like a, yeah, yeah. It like was a, a bindle. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A bindle. And she rode a train that didn't exist. And then, um, and, and she gets there and Joseph asked her to marry her. And it's, you know, we don't really know anything about their courtship. So anytime you're watching it on some church movie and it's like him walking her down by the stream and, you know, your eyes look lovely. I mean, we don't, we don't have any of that. Um, and that's actually totally normal by, for the 19th century. It, it was not something that you generally did was to express this kind of romantic affection in, in any public. And um, that sometimes causes people to think, of, well, people just didn't really love each other back then. No, no, no it's, it's about propriety and the way that people talked about one another. At the same time, people believed in the concept of love, but they didn't always, obviously some people did, you know, they didn't, it, marrying for love wasn't the, the primary reason that you got married. Um, you know, otherwise, you know, there wouldn't, there wouldn't be a sense and sensibility, right? The reason why the book is, it, that's a shout out to Angie. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. It, it, who's not yet asleep in the room full of people? Yeah, <laughs> she's not asleep because these people are keeping her awake with cattle prods <laughs> and whatever else. But um, that's not to say that they don't believe in love and that marriages aren't based on love. It's just that the the understanding is that love is something that grows inside of a marriage. And so, you know this this concept that I'm not going to marry someone until I am. 100% head over heels in love with them. That that's a later. It's actually a late 20th century con, uh, 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 convention, and there's uh, been surveys that demonstrate this. That in the latter part of the Great Depression, just before World War II, they survey thousands of unmarried men and women, and they ask them to say, "What is the most important? What is the most important?" Uh, uh, 
quality that your future spouse is going to have to have, right? What, what will there have to be there? And mutual attraction and love isn't even in the top three, right? They took that survey again in 1996. It was like the only thing that mattered. And so that's, it's such a hard concept for us to even wrap our, our hands around because we actually live in a world today where no one thinks any marriage is in any way legitimate unless it's 100% based on love, right? That's why you even have conversations with people like, I know she's an alcoholic and, and she's cheated on me twice, but I love her. And then they get married anyway, right? I mean, that, that, the concepts from these earlier ages was, you know, it was more important that they had the same religion. It was more important that, um, that uh, for a woman that a man had a kind disposition. Well, why? Well, because, look, there's obviously a lot of spousal abuse in the 19th century, and you may not know what he's going to be like, you know, four or five years down the road, but if he seems like a kind person, well, that's a better, a better start. And so Emma says, uh, you know, when she tells her son how it is that she married Joseph. She says that, you know, Joseph asked me to marry him and preferring him to any other man I knew, I accepted. And now that sounds like it's a sacrament meeting joke, right? It sounds like the kind of joke that I would tell, you know, um, I, it, it, I get it's a bad joke. Like we're in a, we're in a live room and no one laughs. Well, it's a but, sacrament, but sacrament yeah, meeting well, You're grading on a curve. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah, yeah. The applause yeah. sign's going, guys. Yeah, the applause sign. Yeah. You, 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 where... You know, people get up and like, you know, Bishop Von Bosi asked me to speak and, well, uh, I, I thought I'd tell us a little bit about, you know, Angie and I have been married for one day more than Richard and Becky <laughs> and, and, and I asked Angie to marry me and she's so nice that she'd say yes to the first person ever and so she said yes to me, you know. And look, it's not a good joke. That's a barn burner in a sacrament. Yeah, yeah, right. In sacramenting, that's rolling in the aisles. Yeah, that's that yeah. is that is a that is a Johnny Carson level <laughs> joke. I mean, yeah. that is that's a that's a but it's a good reference. <laughs> but <laughs> very the timely. reason why it's a joke is that everyone listening is like, okay, I get it. You obviously you married her because you love her. Well, Emma's not trying to tell a joke. I, I, she's trying to explain what happened. She knew Joseph. Obviously, there was some fondness there, but she wasn't planning on marrying Joseph. Now, my guess is, given the fact that her family is a fairly prominent family in Harmony, that she has a pretty good idea the suitors that her dad wants her to marry. She probably knows by the time where she's at with her life who they're trying to say, well, have you seen the uh, Johnson boy? I mean, you know, he does have three calves. Uh, it would be, not on his legs, but I mean, like actual cows. I mean, that would, that would obviously be a much, you know, first of all, then you'd want to marry him immediately, right? But um, uh, this, th that, that is probably something that plays into it, right? I mean, Emma is already doing something incredibly forbidden in 19th century culture, and that is, marrying against her dad's wishes. I mean, so they are going to just get married. And so because it's so much against her dad's wishes, to us it becomes like the only reason they do that is it was they were desperately in love and their dad was saying that they couldn't see each other and it's kind of like Romeo and Juliet only no one no one ends up stabbed and dead yet. But it 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 in fact I think she like so many women in the 19th century are voting with their feet, right? Culture doesn't allow me, my father doesn't allow me to, to do what I want to do or to say what I want to say. So because of that, uh, if I marry Joseph, 
well, then at least I'm the one making the decision. And like she said, preferring him to any other man that I knew, I, I, I accepted. So now that's not to say that they don't have affection for one another, that they don't. Uh, they, obviously, there's some kind of attraction there. She is going up there to visit for some reason. We don't know. And Joseph's there, right? Um, but they, of course, are going to come to intensely love one another. Um, you can see this even in their letters that they have for one another. Um, and uh, so, look, I think that in part their horrible trials that they go through strengthens the bond that they have. Um, and, and I've said this before, you know, anyone who's in a good marriage knows that y- you love your spouse more after you've gone through a horrible trial rather than rather than less right that, that it brings you closer together and and it makes your love that much that much stronger um i i hesitate to say it in front of people but and also uh my wife um but um you know when i think back even look i married for love right so i mean the latter-day saint version of it right that like you know, I, I took Angie to like Applebee's twice. And then I was like, so do you want to get married? I mean, that kind of, you know, like, you know Blue, it was the Bluebird Cafe Blue in Logan. Logan yeah. yes. I, I, I didn't want to use so, so close a reference. Now people can track it back down. But We're huge in Cash Valley. Oh, oh our Cash Valley numbers are through the roof. I, I, I think, what do we have? Four, maybe five? Four or five. Franklin County, we have two. Yeah. Oh, it's yeah. awesome. I, do we have anything in Duchesne? We do not. Okay. Yeah. Well, is there anything in Duchesne? There is okay. not. Okay. All right. Well, that makes it easier. What about Daggett County? Nope. Daggett County is a no. Okay. Name another county. Uh, Fillmore? Nope. Okay. <laughs> All right. What about Salt Lake County? Uh, we have a couple. Okay. All right. Um, so the the reality is, you know, in, in our Latter-day Saint culture, at least for me, you know, I, I absolutely married because I was in love with Angie. Um, and yet what I thought thought love was when we first got engaged and the way I feel for her now, they are not even similar feelings. If I were to look at something I would have written when I first got engaged to Angie about how I felt about her, look, it was honest and it was of sincere intent, but I'd I'd be embarrassed by it at this point. I'd be embarrassed because it would be so shallow because what I feel for her now is, is almost indescribable. I, I can't consider being happy at all without her. I, I can't. It, it, it's a terrifying thought to even, even think about. And, and so I think, I think everybody kind of understands that you, as you go through a, a, a good marriage, the longer you're in it, the more you love one another. And sometimes these these terrible trials actually they they cause you to love one another even more. And that's certainly the case for Joseph and Emma. They are they are torn uh, 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 apart by the 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 horrors of this world, but always clinging on to one another. And and they seem to to just desperately rely and love on love one another e- even more because of it. It's great. All right. <laughs> next, uh, next question. So today we spent some time in, uh, in harmony and went to the ironic, uh, priesthood restoration site. 
And so we have a couple of uh, Melchizedek priesthood questions that, that came from that. Um, so baptism prompted the restoration of the Aaronic priesthood. What prompted the restoration of the Melchizedek priesthood? And how soon after the Aaronic priesthood was the Melchizedek priesthood restored? Well, uh, those are very loaded questions, difficult yes. questions. First of all, they're not easy. Um, because when we talk about that that uh, restoration of the Melchizedek priesthood, what we're talking about is the, the Peter, James, and John events when, when they come and give additional authority. Um, so Joseph Smith in Joseph Smith history does not ever actually talk about the actual restoration of the Melchizedek priesthood. There's actually a big gap in Joseph Smith history. Um, now, that, that can be quite concerning for people to say, well, wait a minute, I mean, I'm pretty sure I would have written it down. Um, but the, when they were compiling the history in 1839, 40, 41, what becomes very evident as a historian as you're going through it is the way that they're compiling the history is they have an 1835 Doctrine and Covenants, and especially early on, they are going from revelation to revelation to revelation to revelation. And, and providing filler in between, right? So, so then this revelation happened. Oh, yeah, and then I remember we did this and this and this. And then we have this revelation. Now, in part, that highlights that the church is being built off of revelation. You're bouncing from revelation to revelation to revelation to revelation. The problem occurs when there aren't any revelations. So now what happens? And that's actually what happens in this early period of the church. We, we don't have recorded in, you know, in any of Joseph Smith's early documents when the Aaronic priesthood is restored. The only reason we know that is because Oliver Cowdery wrote in a letter to the church that was published when that it was, to say that it was on May 15th. That, that's the only reason we know. We don't know from a Joseph Smith document. So again, already when someone's saying, oh, I'm sure that, why, I'm sure Joseph would have written it down. Well, I'm sure he didn't, right? I mean, well, maybe he didn't. I just don't have that document. I want to say, too definitively. We'll find that document someday, but it'll probably be forged by Mark Hoffman. Um, <laughs> and, and, and so even then, we only have a single document that actually tells us definitively the date. So what if Oliver Cowdery hadn't written that letter? We would know, we'd still know that John the Baptist came. I mean, we would know it. They, they do talk about it. There's multiple references to it, but we wouldn't know when it was. So you can already start to see the problem then of, well, Oliver Cowdery doesn't write a letter saying this is the day that Peter, James, and John came, right? Oliver Cowdery talks about Peter, James, and John coming. In fact, Oliver Cowdery, when uh, he's uh, coming back into the church, makes particular reference to the fact that Peter, James, and John had had their hands on his head, right? So it's not a question of whether or not Oliver uh, Cowdery is saying Peter, James, and John came. So is that the only reference to then... Um, Peter, James, and John laying hands on head is from Oliver Cowdery when he comes back? No, well, from Oliver Cowdery when he's talking about it then. But of course, we have we have two separate uh, uh, Joseph Smith documents, one a revelation and then one a letter that will become a section of the Doctrine and Covenants that talk about Peter, James, and John. So um, the, the first is Doctrine and Covenants section uh, 27. Um, this one is going to talk about it as an already accomplished thing. Now, the difficulty with DNC 27 is that Joseph tells us that the first part is received uh, at one month, and then and the second part, which includes that, is received, he says, a month later in Joseph Smith history. 
but it talks about it as an already accomplished thing. Uh, specifically about hands laid up. Well, let's 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 pull it up, shall we? So in Doctrine and Covenants section 27, in this revelation that Joseph Smith dictates, the Lord is talking about all the things that are going to happen when he comes again. And and honestly, the great party that there's going to be, the celebration that there's going to be. And part of that, talking about those people that are included, verse 12 says, And also with Peter and James and John, whom I have sent unto you, by whom I have ordained you and confirmed you to be apostles and a special witnesses of my name and bear the keys of your ministry and of the same things unto which I revealed unto them, unto whom I've committed the keys of my kingdom and a dispensation of the gospel for the last times and for the fullness of times in the which I will gather together in one all things, both of which are in heaven and which are on earth. So, you get this description of what Peter, James, and John did. It's a, it's a past tense description that it's already happened. I've already ordained you. And what does he ordain them to be? Apostles. Um, ordains them to be apostles, commits the keys of the kingdom, the dispensation of the gospel, the last time, the fullness of times. So it's, it's certainly much more than just this restoration of the authority to give the gift of the Holy Ghost. It's it's clearly much more than that. Um, and we get a little bit more insight uh, into this in yet another uh, revelation in Doctrine and Covenants section 128. Here, this is Joseph Smith writing a letter to the church, and he's, he's trying to kind of cheer the church on a little bit, talking about the great things that are happening. And uh he says, and again, what do we hear? Glad tidings from Camorra, Moroni, an angel from heaven, declaring the fulfillment of the prophets, the book to be revealed, a voice of the Lord in the wilderness of Fayette, Seneca County, declaring the three witnesses to bear record of the book, the voice of Michael on the banks of the Susquehanna, detecting the devil when he appeared as an angel of light. Now that that is literally something that is not in the history of the church, that there is no other account of, and that we have no idea what it is. The one place we know that apparently there was uh, a situation where Michael appeared to say that is uh, not an angel of light, that is the devil, it's right there in that letter that Joseph's writing to the church. So it, it also kind of, it, it's a good demonstration that even though this event is clearly well known to Joseph, that it, that it happened, that it affected him, that it was important is not determinant of whether or not he's ever written about it before, right? But, so the, but the idea of hands laid on head, though, that, that seems... Is that... By, well, from 27 saying they were confirmed and ordained. So that, yeah. That. Um, here, uh, uh, the next line goes on. The voice of Peter, James, and John in the wilderness between Harmony, Susquehanna County, and Colesville, Broome County, on the Susquehanna River, declaring themselves as possessing the keys of the kingdom and the dispensation of the fullness of times. So you get something similar to what's in DNC 27, only um, this is, again, giving a little bit of a location of it, right? It's saying that it was, right, in the wilderness between Harmony, which all of you saw the wilderness surrounding it, um, some of you skipped rocks into it, um, and uh, and Colesville, Broome County, which is where we were even earlier. So that somewhere between there 
along the Susquehanna River is where this event happens. So it's actually a fairly small geographic location. And the size of that geographic location has actually caused some people to be able to say, okay, well, we know Joseph was in Harmony on this day, and we know he was in Colesville on this day, and we know he was in, in, in Fed on this day, so therefore it must have been on somewhere between this time period. Uh, in fact, it's pretty conventional uh, thinking, or at least the argument, that because they moved to Fayette, that it had to have happened, so May 15th is when they received the, the Aaronic priesthood, that they had to have been ordained apostles by Peter, James, and John sometime before June, because that's when they moved to Fayette, which is only a, a couple weeks. It's only a couple weeks there. Now, that that's certainly a, a fine argument. Um, there is the other side of that problem, though, and that is we don't know where Joseph is literally most of the time in, in, in 1829. We know certain days, certain weeks where he's at. We assume he's in places, but those really are assumptions. I mean, a really great example of this, I mean, I say great example, very boring example of this. Yeah, yeah really boring example of this is that um, we would uh, simply assume that Joseph Smith was in harmony the entire time during the winter of, of 1829 to 1830, while, while they're trying to get the Book of Mormon published. We, we would assume that. That would be a, a normal assumption to make because Joseph doesn't tell us in Joseph Smith history that he you know, took a jaunt up to Palmyra, and yet we know he did go to Palmyra. How do we know? We know from another source. We know because, uh, as these fine folks are going to find out tomorrow, uh, Abner Cole, who was working in the the print shop, the same grand and print shop that Joseph was printing the Book of Mormon, he was publishing a newspaper and he began stealing portions of the yet unpublished Book of Mormon and putting them in his own newspaper in order to drive circulation. Oh, you guys are all waiting for some of that, that gold Bible stuff. I've got, I've got the, the, the paparazzi view of some gold Bible stuff. Here it is. Well, when, when they find out about it, Joseph is so worried that he actually will take the stage, and the stage is very, very expensive. Um, he'll take the stage up from Harmony all night to get to, uh, to to get to Palmyra, so that he can go stop Abner Cole from printing portions of the Book of Mormon. It, it's a really big deal. Lucy tells us all about it. We know that Abner Cole was doing it because we have Abner Cole's newspaper. So it's, it's not a question of, did this really happen? Or are they just making up the story? Oh, here's the Palmyra Reflector. I guess it was happening. If you were to just read Joseph Smith history, you would not know that Joseph ever came to Palmyra in the winter. There, there, that story is not in there. And again, that goes back to our problem with trying to date this. Actually, there's a gigantic hole in the history of the church. Because they're, they appear to be using the, the Doctrine and Covenants as a kind of a guide, well, in their Doctrine and Covenants, there's a giant gap between July of 1829 and March of 1830. And so as you're reading that narrative, you can go, you can go, go read it. Go read the narrative. You'll see that it will be like, oh, we, we got the book to the printer, and we were, we were trying to share the gospel some more. Now we got the book done from the printer. I mean, it, 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 
literally leaps over all of those months. Not only are there lots of events like Abner Cole threatening to beat up Joseph Smith and 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 them having this this argument over uh, the publication that the illicit publication of the Book of Mormon. We know that Joseph Smith received other revelations during that time period. Those rev- that revelation that he receives is is not included in the Doctrine and Covenants. So when the compilers are compiling the history, that's not in there. It's not a matter of, yeah, that wasn't a real revelation. It was put into the Book of Commandments and Revelations. People believed it was a revelation. People acted on it as a revelation. It just wasn't what was readily available in the source that they were using. So that's why it becomes incredibly difficult to determine when exactly Peter, James, and John came Yes, you could you could take a, a bet. You know what would the odds on bet be? I don't know. Is it better or worse than what the Heat have right now? Well, they lost. Uh, they lost yesterday. Didn't yeah. Good. Okay. Uh, yeah. We're gonna talk about this for a minute. So I mean, yeah. the Heat. Uh, I think that um, they really needed to win last night. That's gonna really impact things. I'll, I'll look up the odds. Here. Okay. Good. Yeah. Well, we. Uh, you know, our people cry out for odds on games that have been decided weeks ago. Yep. It's the best way to, to, to make money in gambling. Yeah. Well, I mean, the, there are, you know, again, there are people who argue what well, must have been in that two-week window. It doesn't really actually fit the narrative very well. Uh, Joseph makes it sound like in Joseph Smith history that it actually takes a really long time. I mean, you know, that, that they prayed and prayed and they waited and waited, that they really wanted something else. Um, and, and maybe it occurred during that two-week period. Or maybe it occurred when one of the dozens of times that Joseph Smith, well, likely dozens, I don't know. See, there's me speculating. Um, that Joseph traveled from Fayette, where he doesn't actually live, where he's up there for the, 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 uh, this early foundation. Maybe it, it occurred uh, when he traveled back down to his farm. I mean, he, he does go back down to harvest his crops, we assume. I mean, that's what a good farmer does. Um, goes back down for uh, for Emma. We, we don't really know. So that is part of the problem. We know so little about early Latter-day Saint history that often what happens is we grab a hold of the few dates we do know, and then we act as if everything has to occur with the dates we know, rather than being a little more circumspect and saying, here's a possible date where this could have happened, but we don't know anything about any of these other dates. Maybe they're possible too. Instead, we go, well, here's a possible date where it could have happened, so it must have happened then. And that's much more satisfying. It's a much more satisfying answer to say, this is when it happened. But as all of the listeners of the podcast are well aware, we don't do satisfying answers or even satisfying podcasts. The, we, we do nuance that leads people to not know what we're talking about. So, is there potentially something that then may have prompted it? Well, so here's the other... Plus 650. So that means if I had a uh, hundred pieces of bread and I was to give you a hundred pieces of bread that uh, figurative if bread one, then you would give me 650 pieces of bread back. Wow. Not money because where it gets gambling. But uh, bread we're fine with. Or, or walnuts, whatever. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> pelts, perhaps, pelts. of some yeah. kind. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, so the. <laughs> The reality is Joseph does talk about another event in the history of the church that he will relate to the uh, the restoration of the Melchizedek priest. In fact, that's what he will call it. He, he will say that they, you know, that they'd been praying to to receive you know, to have that blessing realized 
that the, that the angel, you know, John the Baptist had promised that if they continued faithful, God would, would uh, give them this, this further uh, power. But the way that it's described in, in Joseph Smith history and in, in, in the history of the church is that, that, that when he's talking about, he says, you know, our, 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 our prayers are essentially, I'm, I'm paraphrasing this, were realized um, because as they're praying about it, they hear the voice of God speak to them. And the voice of God speaks to them in the the chamber of Father Whitmer in the in the in the Whitmer home um, there in Fayette that they are praying and asking God for this, and the voice of the Lord speaks to them and tells them that they should ordain each other elders. So it's this kind of it's a voice that's telling that the voice of the Lord. Not only is this in the history of the church, it's also in um, what we just what we were just citing in, in Doctrine and Covenants section 128. After listing off all these things, the very next thing that he lists off after the whole Peter, James, and John making them apostles, he says, verse 21, and again, the voice of God in the chamber of old father Whitmer in Fayette, Seneca County. So this event is actually something that Joseph references twice as being some important event in the restoration of the church. Um, and, and I don't know that we fully comprehend it. Um, in it, the, the Lord tells them that they're to ordain each other elders, but then it becomes a little bit ambiguous because it says, but they were to defer this, their ordination, until they could get people together who could approve of them being ordained. So did they actually ordain each other? Did they wait till they got people together? It, it's not clear. It is clear that when Joseph is referencing what happens with Peter, James, and John, it is much more than just getting the authority to, to give the gift of the Holy Ghost. They are ordained apostles, and they're given the keys of the kingdom. Something that Brigham Young is going to say had to occur before the, the organization of the church, because you had to be an apostle and have apostolic keys to organize and to run the church. That's part of what Brigham's going to argue. All right. So that's great. Uh, I have another, uh, sh just a short question here about all of the shoot-offs created after Joseph Smith's death. So if you can oh, give me... Oh, the offshoot branch? Uh, offshoot branch of the, the shoot-offs? The shoot-offs. There was... Yeah, that's a different question. Yeah, I, I, shoot -offs. I feel like one is a Willard Richards question. It was. It was. What are all the shoot-offs? What well, are all the shoot-offs? The great Carthage shoot-off of <laughs> yes. Willard Richards. Yes, offshoots. Yeah, offshoots. All the different, every yeah. church, all of them. <laughs> and go. Uh, we'll have to do several podcasts. We, we have promised that. that for a while, well, the succession we, we crisis. We promise a lot of things that we don't deliver. We <laughs> promise information. We promise humor. We promise talent. We've uh, never promised talent. That's true. We haven't promised any of this. All right. So, um, so how, how many? Uh, um, I so mean, many. It, I would need someone to give me that same date range uh, in the sense of when, because some of these offshoot uh, or shoot off shoot off branches <laughs> shoot off branches in where when I grew up that's what we called them yeah yeah okay. I didn't I didn't read that incorrectly yeah. that's what we've always called them yeah in okay my home. yeah yeah I, the shoot off I, I can see branches. what you're reading it seems like yep. maybe shoot we offs. need to have him tested <laughs> uh, so. <laughs> It's hard to tell because some of these that are are essentially uh, offshoot branches that that begin 
after the death of Joseph, they aren't immediate, but within a certain time frame. And so you really kind of have to draw a distinction between when, when am I calling something an offshoot branch uh, related to Joseph's death? And, and when am I now just, you know, a regular old apostate forming a new church out in Utah? Um, because like, for instance, uh, in winter quarters or uh, during the winter quarters time period, you're going to have um, Alpheus Cutler, who is a member of the High Council, lead an offshoot branch back, you know, to Missouri, and they they become the, the go back to Missouri. He's like, hey, winter quarters is so terrible. Well, look, We're going back to Missouri. The only place that will make you say, I can't wait to get to Missouri in the winter time <laughs> is Omaha, Nebraska. Is Omaha, Nebraska? I mean. <laughs> And and it doesn't matter what time of year. Do we have any listeners in Omaha? Not anymore. <laughs> there are wonderful steaks, though. Yeah, wonderful steaks. Um, so, well, so and, and are you are you defining these shoot offs between, like, so you got a the stringites and then you got a string, shoot string string oh, yeah, string 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 strings different. The stringites. Yeah, that's so a, the stringites the str- are a shoot the off of the stringites. That's right. Yeah, that's a later. So you have you have uh, you know somebody that <laughs> that splits off from another group. You wouldn't count that as well. One of I mean, the that's that's offshoots. why it's so hard to tell. Because like, look, William Smith isn't going to leave the church immediately after Joseph dies, but it's actually kind of hard to conceive of him acting exactly the same way had Joseph not died. So would William have stayed in the church? I mean, this is all speculation, right? So it's no, a hundred percent. Yes, absolutely. (laughs) It's all speculation, (laughs) but he is going to be part of founding another church after he eventually does leave the church in 1845. So is that an, a a shoot off branch (laughs) from Joseph's death? I mean, you could obviously make the argument one way or the other. I think the ones that people are the most familiar with are obviously, you know, Sidney Rigdon, because that's where you have this the, the, the whole meeting where the church gets to hear what Sydney says, and then you, you have the meeting where, where Brigham gets to talk as well. And so, you know, uh, and similar to that immediacy is, is James Strang claiming that he actually has the keys and that Joseph told them if anything happened to him, he would be the leader of the church. Um, that one always impressed me the most. I mean, this is just... This has got like a Sunday school second counselor, right? And the he's, Nauvoo, a, he's an thirteenth el- ward. He's, not, he's, he's, he's an elder. He's essentially the presiding elder where he's at in in Wisconsin. <laughs> so that's the main reason why I have a problem with it. <laughs> well, but but I mean, thousands and thousands of thousands yeah, of people. Yeah, initially not as many. So what you find with people who uh, tend to gravitate towards the the shoot off branches, the offshoots, is they are generally people who are not in Nauvoo. They're generally people, again, that's a generalization and someone's sitting here thinking, well, wait, my great, great, great grandfather, he lived in Nauvoo and he became a Stringite. Why are you here? Anyway, (laughs) but um, no, we came back. We came back. We came back. Um, There are some who follow Sidney Rigdon, a few dozen that follow him in Nauvoo out of the, you know, well over 15,000 Latter-day Saints that are roughly in the area. And there are some who follow uh, James Strang in, in Nauvoo, but, but again, not that many. What, where they're really going to get their converts is from people that are affiliated with the church in the various branches all over uh, the country, especially along the East Coast, and especially among newly arriving members coming from the, the, the baptisms that are going on in England and in other places. 
Now, now why is that? Well, it's pretty easy for Rigdon or, or, or Strang or, or any of the other offshoots, you know, William Marks for a time. You know, it's easy for them to argue that Brigham Young has hijacked this religion and he's, he's teaching all these crazy doctrines because many of the things that are being taught by Joseph at the end in Nauvoo are, are not, you know, the door approach in Manchester, England isn't, let me tell you how God was once a man. <laughs> it was my door approach when I was in Wisconsin. And so, it, it, so you, if you have a member who just joined the church in England and they, they come across on a ship and what they think they've got is... I can't wait. I'm gonna go. I'm gonna go meet this prophet. But they think they've got Christianity plus Book of Mormon plus some cool revelations, and and they they land and 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 someone's saying to them, "You're not going to Nauvoo, are you?" They're teaching that God used to be a man there. Brigham Young is teaching people that God used to be a man. Well, that's the most blasphemous thing that could ever possibly be spoken to a Christian. What do you mean God used to be a man? God and man aren't even similar. Well, or. You know, you know, Brigham Young's practicing polygamy in Nauvoo. Do you think Joseph Smith would have practiced polygamy? Well, of course not. Right. But the members in Nauvoo, they are aware of those things. Also, I think similarly, the, the power of the Quorum of the Twelve has something to do with it. Because outside of Nauvoo, you may not fully comprehend the prominent role that the Quorum of the Twelve takes in Nauvoo and in the church. Right? How would you know that just by reading something? I mean, that would be very difficult. But if you're in Nauvoo, yeah, you, you see it. You see it on a, on a weekly basis as the apostles are assigned to do certain things there as they're leading meetings. You see what their role actually is. And so a lot of their converts come from, from those areas. Um, but there are, you know, people like, you know, uh, Bishop Miller, you know, he's going to uh, stay in the church at first and then apostatize at winter quarters and then go and lead a group of people away. You're going to have people like Lyman White who isn't going to claim at first that you know Brigham's not the real leader of the church, but he has already gotten permission from Joseph to lead the group of men who are up in the Wisconsin pineries. Seems like Wisconsin really is a recurring theme with... So anyway, but um, the group of men who are cutting down trees for the, the temple and for the Nauvoo house, he's already gotten permission from Joseph that he can lead them down to Texas and settle in Texas, where for a long time the church actually believed all of the church was going to go. And Lyman White wants to go. And Brigham allows him, says, and Lyman White's a, a, an apostle, tells him, you know, you can go, you just can't take anyone else that hasn't that wasn't already a part of that. Now, of course, some people still go. Lyman White will be tentatively, at least, you know, nominally still a member of this church for a couple of years before he's eventually going to be excommunicated. So, I mean, how would you quantify that? Is that an offshoot after Joseph? It's an offshoot because Joseph dies, but it it, it takes a while. I mean, the reality is there are Tens of thousands, probably, I don't know, tens of thousands. there's at least hundreds and hundreds of various little branches that, that break away. Some of them uh, continue to exist. Most of them don't. Um, and if you get the, you know, a big dictionary of religions and you look under, you know, you know, Latter-day Saint movement, you can, 
you can find dozens and dozens and dozens and dozens. And some of them are just, you know, 40 people breaking away, starting their own church. It lasts for a couple of years and then it, and then it, it falls apart. So our, our last question, uh, many of them didn't have names on them. Uh, but this one, this one did, this one comes to us from, uh, from Gina, um, who lives just down the street from here. Um, <laughs> she, so this is actually my favorite part. This is a very nice question. My favorite part is that she says specifically, Garrett seems like you are aware of most church Not history, Richard, which was my favorite part, right? With things like uh, James String and uh, shoot-offs, I don't know why she wouldn't address it specifically to me, but she did. Um, so Garrett, seems like you're aware of most church history subjects and events. I would love to hear how you personally process as a historian believer new controversial confusing information what have or or uh, do you do with with these these things and we we we've discussed this this too where um you know somebody comes with a faith crisis and they they essentially say to to you which is which is always kind of funny to me but or to me or whatever if you knew what i knew right and it and it uh, it assumes that um that i'm I'm just kind of a, a dupe or an idiot. And if, if I only knew the things that they knew, then I might not have a testimony. Yeah. I mean, it's a pretty advantageous position to take in any debate to say, you either agree with me or you're a liar or an idiot, um, <laughs> which is essentially what they're saying. A hundred percent. That, that, That's right. that, well, if you know about that source, then that means you're just a liar. But I, but I do know yeah, about it. I know about it. Well, that, well, well, then you're an idiot. <laughs> you're, right. they're, they're, you're either you either don't know about it and you're stupid, or you you do know about it and you're a liar because no one could possibly believe if you've seen what I've seen and if you've read what I've read. Uh, honestly, one of the better ways to diffuse those kinds of arguments is by asking them what they've read. You know, and 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 you'll find relatively quickly that while you know they can point you to you know the URL where they read it, they, they don't even know what source they are reading from, right? Let me get this straight. This, this letter that you read claiming that Martin Harris said that he never actually saw the gold plates is so important to you. It's, you're so certain that this is true, that you no longer believe Joseph Smith's a prophet. This is the reason why you're going to alter your entire life you're going to leave the church. You're going to have all kinds of, of family things that you got to wade through because of it, because of this letter. And you don't know who wrote it. You don't know where it is. You, you don't know the context in which it was written. That's crazy. Talk about, talk about not knowing what it is that you believe. If this is now the thing that is so important to you that it's going to cause you to throw away all of the good that you've ever had in the church, I, I would guess that you would at least want to know what it is you're reading. Not, not just, hey, I found some words on a web page. Not just, hey, someone told me this. I'm not, I don't mean to denigrate. Look, people have very honest and sincere questions. Everybody does. If you don't have any questions about religion, well, then you must not really believe because belief causes you to ask other questions, 
what do you think it's really going to be like in 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 the post mortal life? I mean, what do you think? What really is the dividing line between spirit prison and paradise? Those are normal questions. But I think often we we are we are very quick to to throw out the the good that we have and. That doesn't mean that we'll have answers for everything. It doesn't mean that we have good answers for things. Look, if I read something where I'm like, whoa, gee, ah, I didn't know that, right? And of course there's things like that. I, I, haven't, I can't say that, that I, I read it and I'm like, wow, boy, that really, that really hurts my, my faith. I mean, it, in part because I, I, in some ways I kind of expect it. I mean, we're all humans. We all make mistakes. We... we None of us would want someone years from now reading through a day-by-day entry of what we did that day. We would like to heavily redact it. It would be pretty similar to this podcast every time I mispronounce my own name. I would like to I would like to point out all of my mistakes stay on, by the way. I'd like yeah. to point that out. Yeah. Like when you, when when you said, said string, shoot stringites. Yes. Yeah. Stringites. Yeah. yeah. That all stays. Yeah. You flub your own name, cut it out. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Welcome to the standard of uh, of Trump Nerf podcast. Yeah, that's yeah. right. Um, uh, it's the standard of wise. Uh, so I mean I, I I I understand that that reality. I understand that. And 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 if people have questions, welcome to literally everyone else on earth. You're not unique because you have some kind of question about the history of the church. You're not unique because you're trying to figure out how things work. You're it's it's normal. The the difference is what do you do with the question? Do you decide that if you can't find the answer to that specific question, there's no way that anything else is true? Or do you say, I want to find out an answer to this question. You look into it, you try to find it, and sometimes the answer is, it hasn't been revealed. And if the answer is it hasn't been revealed, do you say, well, then I'm out? Or do you say, I really hope at some point God provides more information so that this makes sense to me. And this is exactly what Brigham Young did. We, we talked about this before with, with Doctrine and Covenants section 76. When that was revealed, his response was, how can that possibly be true? You're saying that there is no hell. Every Christian believes that hell exists. Every single Christian my pastors all taught me that hell exists. My parents taught me that hell exists. Every person I know believes hell. Every single Christian then must be wrong if that is right. And as he said, you know, I didn't reject it, but I could not understand it. And then he's going to go on praying and thinking and praying and thinking and praying and thinking until he receives revelation to himself that confirms to him that DNC 76 is a real is a real revelation from God. That's what I would hope that we can try to do. That instead of finding one wrench in, in the works and saying, that's it, we're throwing it all out, realizing that there's some things that you won't have answers to. There are some things that 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 haven't been revealed. There are some things that we we can't quite piece together historically. I mean, I just spent like 40 minutes trying to explain that I didn't know when Peter, James, and John came, and I still didn't make it very clear. Yeah, right now, everyone's like, I have no idea what he said. Um, 
But that idea, I didn't reject it, but I couldn't understand it. You don't have to fully understand everything that's taught in the church or every bit of history that's ever come to believe. Someone who tells you that you do is, is, is holding you up to a standard that they don't hold themselves up to in the things that they believe. Because it doesn't take very many questions in before they also don't have answers for the things that they say they believe. The reality is, as Christians, we believe in things ultimately that cannot be proven, not definitively, not, not scientifically, not, not, not in a way that, that would hold up, that every academic would say, oh my, what a fun theorem you've come up with. You have to have faith and belief. You have to believe it because of, of the Holy Spirit. And so, you know, I love the question, and I, I'd say, for me, if ever I, I were to read something that makes me go, wow, I don't know how that fits in, I've had the Holy Spirit of God speak to me and tell me that Joseph Smith was a prophet of God. And whether he's, you know, writes something a certain way in a letter or not is not the deciding factor on whether or not God has told me that. And I hope that there'll be further revelation that will help me understand some of the questions I have. But until then, like Doctrine and Covenants section 21, I intend to believe and follow the prophet in all patience and faith. That's what's required of a believer. You, a believer humbly accepts that they don't know everything. And yeah, it's a little offensive when someone essentially says, well, you're just a blind, mindless sheep. And if you want to be mean about it, you can say, you know, you can start quoting citations to them and very quickly they'll realize that, yeah, yeah I'm, I'm, I'm blind, but I know all of the sources that you're quoting from and you don't know them. But, but I just haven't read anything. I mean, it's a little bit offensive. The argument that only a liar or an idiot could possibly believe. It's the same argument that was made at the very beginning with, with Ibrahim and Mormonism unveiled. You don't have to know everything to believe. You just have to feel the Spirit of God to believe. That's it. So thank you for joining us on our special uh, Standard of Truth podcast. And uh, we will let uh, let everyone continue on with, with life uh, <laughs> and uh, find something better to do with their night. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for listening to the Standard of Truth podcast, hosted by historian Dr. Garrett Dirkmott. If you know anybody that could benefit from the material in this episode, please share it with them. And for more resources, visit standardoftruth.com. Until next time.